Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skir, and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have Damien Manda, founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. In the interview, Damien shares how he went from special forces to a specialist force for the animals. We also discussed the creation of Akashinga, the world's first all-female, fully armed, plant-powered anti-poaching force and how the IAPF is protecting the world's most endangered. We hope you learn as much as we did from this episode and be sure to check us out on social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube where you can also find the series in video format. It is such an honor to have you with us today. I must say, uh, you are a huge inspiration to me, and I can't wait to get stuck into this interview and talk to you about your amazing work and what we can do to help it. The path you're on today is the result of a passion for adventure that found enormous purpose. For uh, any of our viewers who haven't seen your wonderful talks, like the TEDx one, I will definitely have to link uh, in in the bio of this, um, and films like Akashinga. Um, Can you give us an insight into the Damien who enlisted and became the elite warrior? Uh, Yeah, mate, it's been a... uh, Well, firstly, thanks very much for having us, and thanks to all the listeners for joining us. Uh, Yeah, look, you know... this has been a roller coaster of a life. Uh, sometimes things like I've, I've lived a couple of lifetimes crammed into the past 41 years, but um, it wouldn't change a thing. It's been a, it's a lot of a lot of good lessons along the way, a lot of humbling experiences, a lot of scary experiences, uh, life changing experiences, and and you know we all, we're all a product of our of our past, and we either choose to take a, take on board the lessons we learn along the way or, or ignore them. And you know it's uh, I've been very fortunate. Uh, yeah, I should have been dead about five or six times already. So everything from here is just extra time, really. Um, so just trying to make the most of it, hey. Um, it's um, but it's uh, it's been good. Fantastic. Definitely, definitely. I can well understand that with the um, you know, we, we've listened to many of your talks and interviews, and um, I was uh, I was a dairy farmer in a previous life, you know, farming beef and animals, and so I, I really yeah. understand that whole um. You know, it's all a bit of a journey, isn't it? And, and looking back to that period of your life, as you've said yourself, you know, I totally understand this. You don't get the time to reflect until you're out of it. And um, as a movement, we're constantly battling against cognitive dissonance. Um, but as your statement shows, even those who are in the thick of it, committing those acts, but often can't see the situation for what it is, breaking down that dissonance seems to be an ongoing fight for this movement. But for people like yourself who have been part of these systems, how important is it that we take the past and use it as a tool for the future? Uh, you know, nature's, nature's had billions of years to evolve and evolution is, is the cutting away the bits that don't work and the retention of the pieces that do. And as humans, we, we don't have billions of years. Uh, we only have a, a handful of decades at best in our lives to, to do that, to, to keep the bits that are working and cut away the bits that don't. And, and I think being able to look internally at, at our conscience and listening to truth uh, is a huge part of that evolution. Uh, and we can either choose to evolve as humans or to not. And for me, uh, you know, the suppression of, of the truth and uh, for, for something that humans are fantastic at, at and that's creating excuses for our conveniences, the suppression of that for, for many years uh, in terms of my dietary choices uh, became too much. Uh, it wasn't the person I wanted to be and it wasn't the pers- person that I set out to live my life as. Uh, 
you know, I wanted to be honest. I wanted to be brave. I wanted to be the person that stood up for those that, that needed to be stood up for, us, you know, and, and defended. And and here I was, uh, you know, maybe doing it in some some uh, aspects of life and taking a lot of public credit for it, and and behind closed doors, uh, doing something completely different to what I was asking other people to do and, and other people to believe. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's um it's just one of those things that. Uh, you know, you either own up to, to your conscience or, or you suppress it. And um, I think suppression uh, of of knowledge of what is right is, is a dangerous thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I remember in a, a previous interview you did, you spoke about uh, the destructive obedience. And I love that sort of um, way you termed it, like, for your past life. Because even for me, although uh, not having the same... Uh, military experience and all that sort of uh, stuff it was it's great to sort of see you use that term and think back to my Karnas days and how so many of us are destructively obedient in the manner of what we're doing you know our every meal has been yeah. destructively obedient and you also yeah. brought up um, digging your teeth with with digging your grave with your own teeth you know I, yeah <laughs> I, I've been creating a huge list of so many of the the fantastic yeah. stuff you come out with but yeah it, it's so great to see how much yeah you can use that past and then go into the future with it but um on that point um and using those those tools for the future um i can't help but feel we should all try and be like jackie chan another master of combat uh we're watching his kung fu movies we see him utilizing every tool available whether it be taking down the bad guy with a wooden chair or a paper clip you know he uses everything in the tool bag and um would you agree that we all need to become masters of utilizing the tools around us um, in order to create the results that we want, you know, with a varying method. Well, yeah, no, I, I just scraped into the 70s. I was born in December 1979. So I grew up in the 80s. So I'm, I'm more of a MacGyver guy, you know. So <laughs> I get the duct <laughs> those tape. those out there that are listening, yeah, I like a matchbox and a piece of chewing gum and you can blow some shit up. But, uh, yeah, look, um, we, we all need to use the tools that we have around us. But the most important tool we have is our voice and the truth. And, uh and we all, we all have that, those that are part of our movement. I often get asked a lot, you know, how can we do more? And, and I often feel as though, you know, I'm talking to people and, and they're not listening or I'm, I'm speaking on deaf ears or I'm beating my head against the brick wall. Um, my response is, is, is keep having your conversations. Keep getting better at them. Uh, because a, a, combination, a conversation that you, you have today may feel as though it's falling on, on deaf ears, but the truth the truth is accumulative and it, and it adds up and, and it may be a day, it may be a decade before that person is finally reached. But once the shutters come up, they'll never go down again. And uh, I mean, for me, it took, it took a number of years and a number of people speaking to me from, from different angles. And uh, to go back to your previous question, you know, I, I mean, I come from a certain demographic uh, and, you know, like it or not, I'm an alpha male. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got my background, I've got my history. Uh, and my credentials and and i and but not only that before before i was in the military you know, i used to hunt uh, and the worst kind of hunter the one that did it for fun and not for food and it wasn't even fun it was a it was a desperate attempt to try and get some form of um primal respect from my peers and then to do that i took aim at the vulnerable so i've been there i've been the worst kind of piece of shit that that you could imagine and uh so i've come 180 degrees from there and so i can speak to the person that i used to be because there's uh you know, there's that history, there's that DNA uh, that's still in me that, that'll never change. You know, I'll, I'll always carry that around uh, as my baggage. But you know, that baggage also became became my my 
my uh, you know my freedom and my future, uh, being able to being able to learn from that and, and acknowledge it, and and carry it forward. So yeah, like just you know if I can just say anything, it's just keep keep talking and keep pushing the message, uh, and our message is growing stronger every day. Uh, it's growing wider and it's growing stronger and it's getting more. It's getting harder to avoid, uh, and you know when you talk about cognitive dissonance and, and you know what really it really it, it's hard to comprehend you know and i don't i don't come from academia uh, uh but it's it's really hard to comprehend when you have someone who comes from a scientific background who particularly in conservation and they 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 are extremely well educated most of them you know a lot of the, the people we work with have phds from places like oxford university and and they will they will uh they will, they will completely ignore the, the the plant-based side uh of what we're doing the, the agricultural side of what we're doing and and just focus on their work as conservationists and sort of compartmentalize it without looking at, at the fact that the meat industry is the greatest negative uh environmental factor on this planet uh and the biggest cause of animal suffering now as conservationists we generally sign up for conservation for one of two reasons uh, or both uh, one because uh we want to protect the environment uh, and or two because we like animals or, or, or all the two together and, and the fact that, that that land degradation and clearing um, for the meat industry either to put uh, livestock on it to grow crops to feed that livestock is the greatest cause of deforestation we have on the planet uh, or the co2 emissions from 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 beef for example is is eating away at our ozone you know all these things they add up and and, and for me a conservationist um, you know, there's just two types of conservationists. There's there's vegans and there's those that don't want to take their work home, and um, that the the disconnection that uh, that you know everyday person will place in their life to separate what is convenient for them and what is inconvenient and what they don't want to own up to, it sort of perplexes me. But but when you get someone who's highly educated that is able to still do that, um, that's a little harder for me to understand. Yeah, I can totally get that. I've I've been uh, talking this week with some. Um some advocates for regenerative farming you know and they keep sort of saying we need some animals we still need some animals and i'm like why yeah. why do animals even need to be in the equation you know it's it's, it's crazy yeah. like why can't we just farm you know just just focus on the plants but i mean talking yeah. talking between us as, as kiwis and aussies respectively um and, and you touched on it just before you know what is the difference i've, I've got to ask this what is the difference between someone shooting buffaloes and rhinos in africa and someone shooting deer or tar or wild pigs here in new zealand and australia you know i mean are these kind of animals any less worthy of protecting because they're not seen as exotic or special you know and you've mentioned about how uh, how these people go out there for for fun you know and um it's so true it's a huge part of our culture over here and you know we know a lot of people unfortunately that still do this and how does someone like us reason with the everyday smaller game hunter you know who's going out for a weekend trip with the boys or, or going out to shoot an animal for the for the freezer how can we bring that yeah. relativity home because like you say yeah. i just want to be like you're just shit for doing that i don't like what you're doing yeah. but how do we reason better yeah you know I, I often think um i often think we can be our own worst enemies uh you know we get so passionate about what we're talking about and so you know, often aggressive both internally against each other for people that don't don't uh you know aren't as vegan as others or aren't as staunch or you know have certain flexibilities or or, or whatever it may be and, and you know, we get aggressive and then you know when we're outwards you know and I'm, I'm guilty of it as well you know i fuck if i see someone fucking with an animal or, or you know you know putting something up on social media i find it really hard to fucking bite my tongue and tell me hey, you know stop being an asshole. 
but then I also got to think back to who I was and what sort of reaction I would give to someone uh, who, who spoke to me like that when when I was like that not so long ago. Uh, and, you know, we just laughing and calling a fucking vegan hippie or whatever, telling a piss off or, you know. Um, but, you know, everybody has, uh, everybody has, a, 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 you know, our own vulnerabilities and uh, what those vulnerabilities are, I don't know. Like for me, you know, it became more of a, um, you know, being called out type thing um, you know, by myself and by others. It's like, hey, you know, preaching one thing but not practicing it, and, um, which I'd already been saying to myself. And, uh, you know, that was enough for me. For others, it may be, you know, health, health reasons. For others, it may be, uh, you know, shame or sympathy for animals. We all got to walk our own path, our own journeys. And, and you know, for me, it, it came down to personal experiences with animals that were suffering. And, um, yeah, you know, and, and that, I mean, that, that came from, you know, it's after three years in Iraq that sort of really broke me down uh, in terms of the macho and the ego side and the, the you know this armor plating that i put around myself with some bulletproof creature uh it's just you know just walks through life doing whatever they want uh, without any care or, or courtesy for others and then you know when you see a nation destroyed and you're part of the system that's destroying it and the lives that are lost um, you sort of start to to gain a different perspective and a lens through which to see the world and yeah you know maybe if i didn't go to iraq maybe if i didn't join the military i'd still be hunting i'd still be still be doing what I did to animals I don't know to answer your question I don't know uh, it's just but if we all keep you know as our movement grows wider and wider uh, and our voice stronger uh, if we all keep having our conversations and whether it's on social media whether it's in the news whether it's 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 uh, in person uh, radio you know we just keep get, getting better at our message and, and eventually we reach critical critical mass we're not there yet but um, we're definitely moving in the right direction. You know, I've been I've been part of this movement. Uh, you know, in terms of the the you know, I call it animal rights, vegan, plant based. You know, within the conservation sector, I've been in conservation for twelve years. I've been been in the AR sector for for about nine years. And uh, uh, you know, when I look back on the people that have been doing it from when nobody fucking knew what a vegan was, uh, you know, 30, 40 years, you know, it's a huge respect. Uh, but the changes that I've seen in just the nine, last nine years, you know, I've got to hope. Uh, and I, not beyond hope, I've got certainty that we are moving in the right direction. Yeah, it's been yeah. fantastic to see, uh, even in the last few years that we've been vegan, just to see it just bloom um, exponentially each year. So yeah. um, hopefully we're, we're well on track to getting where we need to be. Well, one of the things that helped uh, with The Catalyst was um, some work that most people should know is the Game Changers documentary, which you featured in. And it took the world by storm in 2019. And this film helped to bring the plant-based uh, message to the masses and shine new light on the reasons to eat plant-based. However, um, it wasn't necessarily a vegan film. It was more of a plant-based film, you know, but yeah. I, personally, I still believe it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorites to recommend to non-vegans, but um, it was your segment um, that was one of our favorites, uh, closely followed by our mate, Patrick Baboumian. Um, yeah. Because it, it shone that light on animal ethics, you know, and what was it like yeah. being the sole sort of animal rights sort of uh, message during this landmark project? Uh, just to take it back a step, you know, so me and Patrick stayed together when we were at Sundance for the launch there. And I, all I can say is I'm glad I don't have to pay fucking Patrick's food bill. <laughs> uh, man can eat, uh, like, geez, uh, he's a big man and he's a hungry boy. You know, and uh, yeah, so but um, absolute uh, gentle giant, a uh, uh, very lovely guy, and uh, I look forward to being able to catch up with him again. 
it was it was actually a, a huge honor um and you know we, we discussed from the beginning uh with with uh, james and joseph uh you know my, what my part in the movie would be and, and how that would be used to to bring across the animal side and you know it was largely a, a show targeted at, at, at men i would say and and you know, trying to hit at the ego side of man and, and this this myth that you've got to eat meat to be a man. And, uh, you know, I suppose they, they had in their minds the idea of a certain character that would be able to tell the animals, animal side. And so, yeah, it was, was um, yeah, it was good to be able to be able to represent the animals. And I, I, I actually don't have much of an interest in, in the nutritional side. Um, and I don't mean that disrespectfully to those that, that are involved in that, that side because I know how important it is uh, in the work that we do here in, in, in Africa, we have a, a program back to black roots and there's a huge focus on the nutritional side. I just happen to, to personally um, maybe not look after myself as, as, as well as I should, but I'm still holding it together. But uh, you know, for me, it's all about animals and that's, that's, what, it, that's, that's what I signed up for. And uh, that's why I stick it in. Um, I stick, you know, stick it, sticking with the, um, the movement, you know, what is it? It's been you know, nine years now or nine years ago, I went vegetarian, eight years ago, vegan. Uh, and look, I'm not perfect. Uh, and, I, and I will say this because some people get so scared of like, oh, if I go vegan, you know, what if I'm not perfect? And, you know, I've had a few 3am drunken romances with the cheesy omelette over the years. And, you know, it's not about, it's not about being perfect. It's about, it's about trying. And, uh, and if you don't get it right or you fuck it up, you know, it's fine. There's always, the sun's always going to come up tomorrow. So, yeah, you know, the people that are out there and they're watching, they think, oh, geez, you know, I could never go vegan. It's not, it's not like a competition. Uh, it's not, and it's not like, it's not like, uh, it's not like final, you know. And if you, and people change, um, you know, I've had, as I said, I've fucked up a few times, but I own it and, and get back, get back on it the, the, the next day. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so true. You know, every bit helps, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, every, every time we show up, every meal that we have that doesn't include animals, that's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's all just good. It's all good. And I have to say, you know, when yeah. we were watching Games Changes, we were at the, the premiere and when we were watching your segment, you know, I know I wasn't the only one, just wanted to bloom and stand up and start clapping in the, in the middle of the theatre, you know, seeing, talking about, you know, the connection and how you made the connection. And it was like, yes, you know, I, I would love to know how many people have, have, you know, you've helped make the connection that wouldn't have been expecting it through uh, through watching the Game Changers. And as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's had a strong focus on dispelling the myths around the, the need for eating animal proteins in order to be masculine. And this is a topic yeah. that you also continue to, to advocate on and present yourself as a brilliant role model for you know I know for for me even you know I'm not even a bloke obviously but for me since I became vegan four years ago my definition my perception of what it is to be manly to be real man to be really masculine mm. has completely changed you know how do you yourself as someone who like you say is is that alpha male how do you define masculinity um and you know probably how would you define it now as compared to how you did? Uh, you know, and I still, you know, I still keep, uh, uh, keep company with a lot of ex special forces guys. And, you know, especially if you're around having a barbecue or whatever, and, you know, I'm, I'm inside frying mushrooms on the side or whatever, like, oh, you know, you're fucking vegan, uh, where, you know, where you get your protein from, fucking hold my <laughs> shit together. Uh, that's where I get it from. Uh, but it's, you know, as, I mean, as, as, as someone who's is strong and, and, and alpha and, and, you know, uh, 
you've got to own that. And I think our job in society is to be protectors and, and to stand up for those that can't defend themselves and, and animals sit right at the top of that list. And, and my message out there for all my brothers who, you know, the big macho guys, the tough guys, you know, why would you want to fuck with someone that can't defend itself? And beyond that, why would you want to pay someone else to do your dirty work? And ultimately that for me is, um, yeah, that's why I'll never, never, never touch meat again. Mm-hmm. Don't want to pay someone to do something I'm not willing to do myself. And ultimately I don't want to fuck with something that, innocent doesn't deserve to die or suffer and they can suffer just the same as us that's fantastic yeah i love the approach on that um your life's focus now though is the international anti-poaching foundation the iapf and the akashinga program as well which um, i'm looking forward to getting into um both programs uh you were the founder of and uh you were inspired by the work of the rangers and seeing firsthand the plight of the wildlife, you know, and your passion for adventure truly found its purpose in, in doing this work. Um, we wondered if you mind sharing that catalyst moment that you had that really brought it home for you doing this work. Yeah, so, I mean, for, I mean, there was obviously a, a lifetime leading up to, to the point of change and in, in, in deciding to set up uh, an organisation, uh, the IAPF, uh, that would carry forward the work that I, w- I wanted to do in conservation uh, and... You know, I mean, the breaking point for me was seeing a buffalo, uh, a, a big, majestic, powerful animal, uh, female buffalo caught in a, in a wire snare uh, with a, her back leg uh, stuck there. And, and a wire snare is what your poachers will put over the, the tracks of where animals go and the animals walk through and they get trapped either around their neck or their body or their legs. And, uh, and as, the, as they pull harder and harder, the snares get tighter and tighter and they try to tie to big trees and... Uh, this this buffalo, uh, she and the rangers they can they can look at the ground and they can read the ground the tracks on the ground the same way that you or me read the front page of the newspaper as a language, and they can tell how long something has been there or how long ago it came past. And the rangers, you know, she's still alive. You can see the bones crunching uh, under her skin where she ripped her own pelvis in half. Uh, and the ranger said she, she'd been there for three days, uh, struggling like that. And um, yeah, I don't know what it was. I don't know why. Uh, and seeing animals like that affected me differently um, than before Iraq. Um, but, you know, Iraq just gave me a different perspective on things. And uh, so we euthanized that, that buffalo that day. And, uh, and as we did, she started to give birth to a stillborn calf. And that was, um, yeah, that was a turning point for me. Uh, always, it was, it, was a, it was a finishing point of one life and the beginning of another. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think it was Rich Roll that you were talking to about that experience, and uh, I was walking down the street a couple of days ago, listening to you talking about it, and I was just, you know, crying as I was walking along down the yeah. street because I can't imagine, like you say, they're innocent; they don't deserve any of this. And so, um, yeah, you know, I can't even imagine to have that effect on me. Just hearing you talking about it to actually be there, mm. you know, to to not how could you not be affected by that? And um, yeah. And, um, you know, talking of catalysts, I mean, I have to wonder as well, how did you come up with the concept for Akashinga? You know, did you have a similar kind yeah. of light bulb moment where you just realised, this is what we need to do, you know, to, to progress conservation? Um, and how did you go about starting something like the world's first fully armed plant-based female anti-poaching force? Uh, so Akashinga was born out of desperation, uh, desperation to try and do things differently to try and find a better solution and you know i spent a lot of time traveling pre-covid uh around the world lecturing and i'm a nat geo uh speakers bureau 
um, and just kind of talking at schools and universities. And I used to start my talks by saying, listen, what we do is not the answer. Uh, think of us, and this is when we had like this very uh, militarized approach. Uh, think of us as like the paramedic trying to get the patient to the operating table. Uh, so someone can come up with a better solution than, than, than what we have. Uh, we're just trying to keep these things alive. And, um, you know, there was a combination of uh, multiple factors that, that led us into trialing what, what has gone on to become the only network of nature reserves in the world to be managed and protected by women. Uh, and armed all female anti-poaching units out there uh, protecting nature. And, and uh, it was, uh, I mean, initially, so looking at the conservation industry where women on the ground are outnumbered, uh, in the field are outnumbered at a ratio of around 100 to 1 uh, to men. Uh, so women weren't given access to the roles and the experience they needed to be able to rise up in the ranks and fulfill uh, management positions. And, and at the same time, seeing other industries getting ahead by getting more women uh, on the board, more women into management positions, more women as CEOs. And so conservation was sort of being left, um, being left behind. Uh, and like to, you know, I don't want to be unfair to the industry, but if, if we were getting it right, uh, the situation would be much better on the ground. And so you're looking at different ways at a time when the conservation industry was becoming increasingly militarized and increasingly antagonistic with indigenous local populations. Uh, we were running a program along the South African Mozambique border, uh, spending a, you know, seven figures a year on that to have an on ongoing conflict with the local population to try and protect a third of the world's remaining rhinoceros across the fence in Kruger National Park. And um, you know, was it sustainable? The UN Population Division says there'll be 2 billion people on this continent by, by 2040. And, and you get to a, sort, a certain point, you realise uh, it'll be the people that determine the future of, of wildlife and conservation here, not, not bigger fences and more guns and firepower. So, you know, that was, that, that was, the, that was the, the sort of why, but the how was still yet to be, be crafted. Uh, um, we we started looking at other programs in conservation that, that were more inclusive of women, but we found, found them to be women to be like in position of, of like, like uh, tokenism. You know, they were given a uniform and a rifle and, and pictures were taken for marketing and they weren't actually doing the job that was being portrayed that they were doing. Uh, or women, yeah, they, they, you know, if you've got a staff list, there might be a certain, you know, a higher threshold percentage of women that are on that staff list. But the fact is they're sitting on desks or on checkpoints or on gates or walking fences. Uh, and um, so, you know, ultimately for us, it was kind of became a question, you know, can, can women be trained to do the job? If the answer was yes, then let's try it. If the answer was no, then, you know, we'll, we'll go back to the drawing board. Uh, so that, that's sort of very simple for us to determine. We do, do selection and put women through selection process. Um, still weren't convinced. And then uh, we, we, I read an article in the New York Times uh, 2017. And within that article, there's a link back to another article written in 2015 about the US Army Rangers putting uh, women through training uh, in preparation for frontline deployment. And uh, so the, the relevance of that uh, uh, article to me personally was you know a decade before reading it was you know we were you know, on a routine mission in northern Baghdad when our convoy had been um, been hit and uh, a few people at the checkpoint were going through being killed um, we were quickly surrounded uh, you know sh shit was not going well and um, it was the U.S. Army Rangers that that came in and were able to extract us out and get us back to safety so yeah it was it was just uh, Querying myself was okay. This unit that saved my life is now training women 
to be army rangers, then let's try and train women to be wildlife rangers and, and proper ones, not ones that are stuck uh, stuck on a checkpoint. And um, yeah, that's how it started. Hey. Oh, it's fantastic. And um, yeah, we'll also have to link in the Akashinga um, short documentary uh, link to this because it's fantastic to see part of that process shown. But um, one common misconception, and I think it's important that we should bring up, is that anti-poaching doesn't necessarily mean a manhunt or uh, running around the African plane shooting people. Um, yeah. And so, in fact, it's quite the opposite. I, your team practices the use of minimal force in order to get the job done, you know. Uh, when we spoke to Captain Paul Watson, the founder of Sea Shepherd recently, he described his approach when sinking whaling ships as aggressive non-violence, um, a term we can't help but love. Would you class yeah. your action in a similar way? Look, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, I mean, the area that we, we deployed the first group of women, you know, we started this program with 16 women. And they've got 240 staff uh, scaling towards uh, 1,000 women by 20... Um, 26. Um, the area they were deployed into uh, in the 16 years prior to this project starting, there were 8,000 elephants killed. So 8,000 times teams of armed people came into that area willing to kill elephants or anyone standing in their way. Uh, and so like for us, while we can hope for the best, we also have to prepare for the worst. Uh, these are uh, uh, armed gangs, uh, often with a military background, uh, using automatic rifles, heavy caliber rifles, uh, to come in and, and conduct their operations uh, after crossing international borders. And um, yeah, the stakes are high. Uh, so while, while we can hope for the best, we have to prepare for the worst. And so there is a fairly high degree of training that the, the women have to go through. Uh, it's quite rigorous. A selection process in itself uh, is, is very tough. Uh, and, and a lot, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the women come and try out the pre-interview process but, uh, or pre-selection process. We can only take a certain amount to go on the selection. Uh, funnily enough, you know, the ones that do go through selection, they're bloody tough, hey? and most of them make it to the end of selection, and we have to make a choice who the best ones are. Um, but I will, I will say, so when we were in Iraq, our job was to train battalion-sized groups of Iraqi nationals, uh, both police and special police, the paramilitary wing, and deploy them out around the country. And we found when we did that, uh, a lot of them wanted retribution, and they used that, their position of power and authority to go out and seek that retribution. And uh, we were worried that we would get the same reaction with the women uh, because of the backgrounds they came from. Uh, our selection criteria was uh, 18 to 35 survivors of serious sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS orphans, single mothers and abandoned wives. And uh, what, what we got uh, compared to Iraq was completely the opposite. Uh, women just seemed to have a very, a very different value system, um, a natural de-escalation of tension and force versus an antagonism. Uh, um, in, in potentially uh, or in positions of conflict or potential conflict. Uh, and for us, you know, a lot of these things we were, we were learning as we were going along. And, and I, I very much became the student uh, in so many areas. I mean, my background is counterinsurgency warfare. Our job is to look for a fight and finish it. Um, I, I've built a career across three continents by training hard men breaking hard men, bringing them to the point of breaking and rebuilding them into what we need for frontline deployment. I never worked with a woman, never trained a woman, never deployed with a woman. Uh, so this was all very new for me. And, and the lessons that we were learning along the way is actually, I can't sit here and say we planned it all out from the beginning because we didn't. Um, a lot of things just fell into place. And, you know, there's, there's another article in the, in the New York Times, um, you know, quite some time ago. And, and the heading is just add women and stir. 
and essentially that's that's what we did and um everything else was sort of spun off that and uh you know but i mean to, to give you i mean if you start talking economics you know we spend about one third per acre per annum protecting the areas that we look after now uh, than what we did when we're working along the crew uh, the, the mozambique south africa border because we don't have helicopters we don't have aircraft and military grade hardware uh, yes the women carried weapons uh, they've had to get in over 300 arrests they've had to use the they've had to fire their weapons once um, what we do have is something more powerful than biceps and bullets and that's interpersonal relationships driven at household level by the women whose grandparents were raised in these communities those grandparents raised their, their parents and their parents raised them and they're raising their children there they have a vested interest in those places and, and the well-being and the long-term benefits of conservation in that area stop the podcast we would like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners viva Viva are experts on vegan health, nutrition, recipes, lifestyle, and campaigning noisily and effectively to save animals on our planet. Want to go vegan and be a champion for the animals? Everything you need is right here. Head on over to viva.org.uk to learn more. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, definitely. I'm watching these women just stir something in my heart, hey, and my heart just gets yeah watching them yeah. and just oh my god yeah. like I am so the pride I, I feel so much pride and I can't imagine what it must mm. be like for you but I am so proud of these incredible incredible women and yeah. you know you said yeah. yourself women are the future of conservation and the incredible women of Akashinga have already proven themselves better equipped to take on this role traditionally given to males um, in a previous interview, you spoke of how the women are able to bridge the gap um, between the community and conservation, just like you said. And, you know, these two things are previ previously really at odds with one another. Can you tell our viewers a bit about this? I've been following you for a long time, so I, I know about the community-led conservation, yeah. but it's it's so unique. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it feeds back into that, that, you know, what I was saying, the de-escalation and, and not looking for a fight, but looking for a resolution. You know, women tend to want to, have a conversation with something before they blow it up or shoot it, uh, which you know is great when you're trying to have a relationship with tens of thousands of people that live uh, alongside the area that you protect and outnumber you, you know, thousands to one. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, as I said, I, I don't know. It's um, yeah, sometimes it's almost like we're different species, yeah, and it's just uh, um, yeah. But the, the I mean the, the benefits uh, you know it goes beyond just de-escalation in. in um, in, in in force uh women are fantastic at collecting information uh you know about a third of, of uh, law enforcement crimes around the world are solved by catching the person in the act the, the, the perpetrator in the act the other 97 percent are solved through investigations and, and intelligence led operations so uh, information is critical having a community that's willing to give you that information is is just as critical uh, and so they're good relationships that the women are able to have with the communities by not trying to have a war with them. That feeds back into the into the system, and, and we're able. You know, we know people come into our reserves. We know animals do get poached, uh, but it's either a day, a week, or a month, and we catch those people. Um, you know, the other the other the other important component of this too is the economic side, uh, which I touched on briefly before. But it's actually so so for the listeners that you know, probably will appreciate this point. The, the reserves that we have, we started with one, we now have eight reserves under contract anywhere from 20 to 45 years. The reserves that we had are all former trophy hunting uh, areas. Uh, trophy hunting is a dying industry uh, across the continent. There is, is collectively 
uh, twice as, as much area set aside for trophy hunting as there is for, as national parks. And, uh, you know, as hunting dies for, for a number of reasons, uh, one being reduced wildlife populations, uh, other being shifting in regulation uh, around the exportation of certain trophies, uh, such as elephant ivory from places like Zimbabwe to the US that used to make up 52% of the clientele that's been banned or stopped. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's got nothing to do with, with elephants' lives. It's got to do with sanctions on Zimbabwe. Uh, uh, the other one is um, just a younger generation raised on social media that doesn't want to shoot things anymore. So, so all that means a shrinking customer base of hunters and, and areas like the ones we pick up that are, that are being left dilapidated, shot out, no animals. The community will come in and kill you know, whatever's left, cut down the trees, turn it into a grazing area, agriculture, human settlement, and then that area is lost. And uh, at a time when civilization has been brought to its knees with COVID, uh, been brought to its knees by a small scaly anteater, um, it highlights the importance of biodiversity and looking after these natural areas. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a, a, a bigger lesson in, in, in modern history as what we're getting at the moment uh, if we don't look after nature. So holding onto these areas for us is important. Being able to find a, a, an alternate use or an alternate economic benefits to the communities through these areas as opposed to trophy hunting was what we set out to do. And to do that, we, we had to look at hunting not as an argument to be had, but as an equation to be solved. And um, so we sat around the table with hunters uh, and I proudly say I'm the owner of a hunting uh, company, which we bought out with, with all their land uh, and contracts. We don't hunt on any, any of our areas, obviously. Um, that's stopped. Um, but, uh, you know, with the model that we have, you know, we with national parks and with, with areas that a lot of conservationists protect, they would often bring in men from around the country to protect those areas uh, and bring in men from hundreds of kilometers away. Uh, and the reason that was done was to avoid collusion or corruption with local communities they may have grown up with. Uh, with the women, and as we scale, we haven't had a single incidence of corruption, uh, which in itself is, 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 is another huge benefit uh, you know, if, if Denmark is number one on the global corruption index, Zimbabwe sits 160 out of 175 countries. Okay, so it's one of the, the countries in the world where corruption, corruption is, is most, uh, most damaging. And uh, you know, so to be able to remove corruption from what we do through the employment empowerment of women is, is a huge way forward for us. Uh, but what it does do is it allows us to employ women directly from the local community because we don't have to worry about this corruption issue. And, and that turns the largest line item in our budgets, which is range of salaries, into a direct community investment. Uh, and it's not going in at government level uh, or it's, it's actually it's only going in at household level into the hands of women. Uh, 62 cents from every operational dollar we spend is going into the community. So we can't buy engine parts and oil and fuel and all that. Uh, and off that 62 cents, uh, uh, about 80% of that is going in at household level. Um, so it's, it's, it's getting right in there at ground, grassroots level. Um, and now on paper, we're putting the same amount into the community every, every 34 days as, as what trophy hunting was doing per annum. Um, so we have a viable economic alternative to trophy hunting that for us is only working with women at the center of that strategy. And, and like beyond that, the bottom line, triple gears, Women spend 80 to 90% of their salary on, on family and local community versus a, a man that will spend on average between 30 and 40%. So, you know, just the numbers alone, you know, we, we, we found a way to turn the largest line item in our budget into the most effective form of community development. Uh, and that's women's empowerment. There's an overwhelming body of evidence that tells us 
empowering women as the single greatest force for positive change uh, on earth today. And it definitely uh, is never more so seen than in the, the rural areas of, of Southern Africa. Uh, uh, and just by shifting the strategy of conservation, by putting women's empowerment at the center of that strategy, it gives us the greatest traction in community development and conservation became a byproduct of that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I know in previous interviews, you've said how uh, one of the most important things of these programs has been working with people. And it's just, it's fantastic to see how you guys are working with the community and get, get the community to work with each other um, and yeah. not, not be fighting each other anymore on this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Thank yeah. you. No, we used to look at conservation as starting within the reserve and, and going out protecting it. Now you start in the communities and, and protect in towards towards nature, and it's definitely, um, I mean, you know, we saved you know millions of dollars uh, by shifting that strategy, which we were able to reinvest back in the community, in, uh, clinics, education, roads, water, uh, you know, other other rural rural development programs, um, expansion across more areas. So, yeah. It's amazing. Like the more I hear about your work, I just, I just love it. It's just staggering what you're achieving out there, and you know the the area of, of land, you know the the millions of acres you're protecting, and, and the wildlife is coming back, and you know with, there's so much more to it than everybody thinks. So you know we we really want to make sure that everybody follows your work, and um, you know we'll, we'll certainly get to that. But for for being on a personal level, you know when we're researching the um, the Akashinga, an interesting thought occurred to me in regard to the link between maternal instinct and roles given to women around animals. So on my first hearing about the all-female force, my initial thought was that this instinct had to be the reason for choosing women over men, because having had that role exploited myself during my former years in the dairy industry, you know, that was something that that's why women traditionally get given the the role for caring for the calves because we're better at looking after babies we're better at caring for animals so i found it both surprising and refreshing that with akashinga this isn't the case you know akashinga is a truly empowering and inspiring recognition of female equality and skill as you say do you come across this assumption often i just wondered you know is, is that why women are doing it because we've got that maternal instinct you know <laughs> um no look at interesting to say that no I, it hasn't really come up too much uh but i will say it is, is it is one of the empowering things about the program and and uh and what does make it i think um you know it's 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 you know it's these women with this program i say you know beyond their families they have you know what is the most elusive thing in life and it's purpose uh, and they really are they're passionate about protecting these animals uh, and when when we do lose an animal, uh, it is you know I mean we we, we all, all of us we we spend more time looking after the animals than we do looking after our families. And that's just the nature of the job and the amount of time we spend away. So when when we lose an animal, uh, you, know, you know we have to be right a hundred percent of the time. Poachers have to be right once, and when we lose one, it is it's a blow. Hey? Mm, yeah. Um, there's one thing that I, I thought of as well about with the program. So the Akshinga program is vegan in itself, but you don't actually have to be vegan to be part of it necessarily you know from from the people come from the community and quite often when speaking to Carnis, you know they'll bring up these arguments of you know um what about the inuit population how you know they can't eat vegetables you know they need to eat meat what's it like mm -hmm. uh providing the plant-based you know the food the vegan food um in zimbabwe and stuff like that like especially when you're on an expedition is it easy enough uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean we've we've got seven vegan chefs cooking for for this growing army of of uh, conservationists, 
Uh, we have a program within Akashinga and that's called Back to Black Roots, headed up by Chef Cola. She's just had a great uh, write-up in Forbes magazine uh, a few weeks ago, actually. Um, and Back to Black Roots is, is a four-stage program. Uh, and the first stage is teaching the rangers not only how to grow your own food, but, but how to prepare your own food uh, and meal plans and how to speak about your food and understand it from a nutritional and ethical and an environmental standpoint. Uh, and when we do those three things, uh, they start to understand the most important thing, and that's the why. And um, so that's stage one. Stage two is them working with their families. Stage three is working with the communities. And stage four is building ambassadors. Um, we're actually we're at stage four at the moment. Look, not everyone likes it when they first get there. Uh, you know, it's, we, we tried this with a group of male rangers uh, some years ago, and we almost had a mutiny. Uh, you know, we, you know, they said, we're inter I'm interfering with their culture. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, I kindly highlighted that Africa was largely raised on a plant, predominantly plant-based diet where meat was reserved for, for um, ceremonial purposes. And it was only um, a colonist that bought uh, large-scale agriculture and, and, and also yeah, very destructive crops, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, very poor from a nutritional standpoint, crops to Africa, uh, but that became their new culture. And, um, you know, so, so I look at the majority of women, and interestingly, it's, it is one of the things that the reporter will, you know, when they will get a journalist or something in camp, and they'll, they'll come up to me and say, hey, listen, you know, I pulled a few of the women aside and we were having a bit of a chat, and I was asking them about the, the whole vegan thing and how serious they are about it, and if it's just a, you know, a facade and, and he's like, nah, they're pretty serious about it. You know, they, they, yeah. You know, and I, I will say, you know, not, not all the women maintain it at home, but the majority do. Um, everything we do in camp is, is plant-based. Um, I mean, in, in our main camp where our headquarters is, we've got five acres of, of gardens growing there and gardeners. And uh, we've actually got a permaculture specialist coming in soon. Uh, we're going to be shifting a lot of it to permaculture. Um, so yeah, it's, it is. It's uh, we're doing a big garden at the one of the local schools as well. Um, so that'd be part of the community component of uh, of Back to Black Roots. And it, it, I mean, you look at look at so many of these countries in sub-Saharan Africa where the medical systems is nothing like we'd expect back home, and uh, you know the difference between life and death uh, can just be often basic medicine. And um, you know, countries where cancer and diabetes and, and stroke and, and heart disease are so um, so common. Um, prevention is the best cure and, and prevention in its, its best form comes in what we put in our body mm, that's fantastic that's wonderful um, we recently spoke with Eduardo uh, Gonzalez. he's the founder of the campaign to ban trophy hunting and mm. we were shocked um, beyond words at the, the scale of the industry and um, as we've touched on earlier you know, in Zimbabwe uh, you just we, well, you described in a previous interview how 20% of Zimbabwe was set aside for trophy hunting. And then across Africa, it was an area the size of Texas, which is it's mm. mind blowing. Um, in the former life with the military, though, you were in a job where, you know, the budget was was no problem. You could do whatever you liked, you know, in order to get the job done. You know, you just keep on spending the, the Defense Force budget. What's it like now being on the other side of the table where you are no longer the hugely funded uh, organization? You're now sort of on, on the back foot of trying to fight this huge, well, luckily, as you say, you know, it's a shrinking industry now, the trophy hunting, but it's got so much money behind mm -hmm. it. You know, you're now on the side of right, you know, fighting that financial might. What's it like for you? So, I mean, our, our, 
we're not necessarily there to fight the hunting industry. Um, ours, ours is to fight illegal illegal hunting, which is known as poaching. Uh, and there is a differentiation there. Um, and so, even if you want to talk about the hunting, um, which which is fine, uh, just as long as people understand, one is legal, and uh, as much as we may dislike that or, or leaves a bad taste in the mouth, the other one is illegal. Uh, so poaching is illegal, and that's what we're constantly fighting. Hunting is we're trying to create alternate uh, economic income streams for areas that were previously used as hunting. Uh, we don't want to come in and take over a hunting operation that's working um, because it's you know it's going to be a huge commercial outlay to buy something like that out. Rather wait till it's it's you know the area is dilapidated and and come in and do a long term deal with a community that's looking for something different. Now understanding that that hunting is on the you know has died in that area. Uh, so I mean to talk about hunting, you've got to split split the hunters up too. Um, You've got you've got the hunter who is the operator, the guy that takes out the lease on the land, and for him, hunting is generally not a way of a way of life. Um, hunting is an income stream, uh, and I'm not saying this in trying to defend the industry or trying to defend the individuals. Um, I'm saying it because I, I used to be the other type of hunter, the one that did it for fun or the trophy hunting, the ego trip. That's the guy, you know, the, the, you know generally the big fat slob you see come out from America, sit on the back of a truck, drive around till they find something and go and shoot it take it home and hang it above the mantelpiece and bring the boys around for a beer and show them you know, how small your dick is. Um, but the operator on the ground, they're often talking about people that have that have been in the industry for, for decades, sometimes generations, and they've made, they've made something work often from nothing in very tough circumstances um, with very little income stream. Uh, and this is, this is what the anti-hunting movement needs to understand. Okay, when you switch hunting off in an area without an alternate source of income, everything is lost. Uh, not just the animals, not just the trees, but the land itself, unless there's someone else there ready to take it up. So we can jump up and down as much as we want and say we hate hunting. We don't want to see fucking pictures of dead animals on Facebook and, uh, and people standing behind it with their rifles and that. Um, but if you, if you don't like it that much, then be a part of a different solution. Don't just shut it down because when you shut it down, the trees go, the animals go, the fences go, the patrols go, the, the vehicles go, the community development work goes. And I, you know, the only thing I dislike um, more than hunting, uh, uh, when we're talking about hunting, is the fact that as an international community, we've relied on it to be the only economic income stream for so many areas. Okay, so if the world really hates it that much, then put the money on the table so we can buy out these places and, and do something different with them. Until then, you know, don't you, you can't you can't just have it banned uh, overnight because you know there's far more at stake than uh, you know. And I agree. You know, from an ethical standpoint, it's fucking horrendous. Uh, from a practical standpoint, you know, you can't just switch off one switch and expect everything else to just be rosy afterwards. It's not. It gets even shittier. Yeah, thank you so much for that insight because they these are the insights that we need within the movement because we oh. at Vegan FTA we want people to be able to advocate better and to understand who our adversary oh. is and how to work with them. That's what we need, you know. Like we've seen that with well Jackie and having her experience in the dairy industry has helped us to further our movement in finding alternative solutions. And yeah, thanks so much for that insight. Yeah, exactly. We, we want we want everything to end overnight, but we've got to face the reality. You know, yeah, <laughs> these yeah. things take time. Um, yeah. You know, and these these times are challenging now more than ever. But you know, so twenty twenty was a year that struck a devastating blow to the economic structure globally, and many people were forced to either diversify or become bankrupt. Um, how did the pandemic affect the model that you had put in place? 
um, and how has it affected trophy hunting in general? Yeah, so we, uh, yeah, there was, I know I remember it, uh, going back last year, there was about a, a two week period where I literally hardly left my desk, you know, maybe, you know, four or five hours a day to go and sleep and then straight back. And that was us just changing the whole way that we approach things from a fundraising standpoint, operational standpoint. We made huge cutbacks uh, across the organisation. I think in the space of two weeks, we cut back about 40% of operational expenditure, uh, put some projects on hold, prioritised what was needed now, what could wait. Um, and I'm proud to say that we didn't lay off one staff member uh, because of COVID reductions in fundraising um, over the last uh, 13 months, um, 12 months. Um, the only people that took uh, pay cuts were management, with myself taking the largest pay cut. Uh, and all that was restored after about five months. Uh, we switched a lot of our fundraising to digital. Um, I used to you know, spend a lot of time traveling and going speaking with people around the world and, and doing lectures and fundraising and having meetings. And obviously that couldn't happen. Uh, I think we're all tired of the Z, the Z word at the moment, Zoom. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> So I'm looking forward to getting back on the road and getting out there and, and having these, these interpersonal um conversations and you know with, with the bigger bigger donors um you know, and the smaller donors as well it all adds up but uh yeah it was it's it's been a it's been a tough year um, we still experienced about 26 percent growth in our financial income last year which was below projection uh, and where we've been for pre you know, previous few years uh but um you know we stuck it out we dug our heels in we stuck it out and as we as we say in the, the clearance diving branch where i came from improvise adapt and overcome and uh, you know that, that's easier easier said than done, but you know we did it, and um, you know it's it's uh, I mean it's a tough time as a conservationist in any time, uh, given that the majority of, of funding that goes into not for profit ventures uh, goes to to humanitarian causes about ninety five percent, about the five percent reserved for animals, uh, domestic and wild, and conservation and climate change, and environmental causes. You know we we. You know, in the USA, there's more money given to ballet each year than is given to conservation. You know, it's just, you know, fuck, I mean, not that I've got anything against ballet, you know, do the pirouettes or whatever the fuck they are. <laughs> but, um, you know, if we don't look after the, the planet and the one backyard we've got, there's going to be fucking no one left to pirouette. We're going to be fucked. You know, we think we sit at the top of the food chain. Uh, we're not, we, we're not the main act. Uh, we're part of a, a, a system. Uh, a system that's been refined over, over billions of years on a planet that's been spinning for 5.3 billion years. And uh, if we think we, we're bigger and better than nature, we've got a surprise coming for us. Uh, I'm so glad you guys have improvised and adapted and, and kept on going strong. And I'm sorry to drag you back onto Zoom for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it is what it is, right? Hey? Uh, so what's the biggest challenge you guys are facing right now? Uh, look, I mean, the, the, the biggest... Look, the biggest blockage we had was just the sheer scale of what we're trying to do um, and, and being able to build the infrastructure to be able to deal with that scaling up as, as an organisation. You know, going from a, a small organisation that was a service provider to being an organisation that is, is, you know, across the regions we work, one of the biggest employers, uh, you know, and covering you know, some of the largest areas uh, in the country and one of the biggest protectors of land uh, in Zimbabwe. And, um, expansion into surrounding countries at, at the same time. So it became an internal thing as an organisation, building that infrastructure for training uh, and management and hiring the right people uh, and having the money to be able to back that up. And, and yeah, there, was, there was a point there where you, know, you could have given us all the money in the world, but unless we had a team of trained Zimbabwean instructors, then there's no way we're going to be able to train the next group of Zimbabwean rangers. 
uh, and um, yeah, so we I mean, working. You know, the, I mean, the funding is always a challenge, uh, and we're always, you know we've got a team working around the clock and, and trying to bring that funding in, and, and a very um, generous uh, global community that that supports us. Um, but our job on the ground is trying to try and use that money in the most effective way to achieve our mission. And um, in a way, we certainly the way we operate is still very special forces in terms of, of modus operandi and special forces is small groups of people getting big jobs done with minimal resources and minimal fuss uh, and that's uh, the, the sort of culture we, we, we still carry as an organization uh, you know we have big fancy uh, offices and, and, and headquarters and all that um, you know we get we get shit done we get shit done down in the dirt and um, it's not fancy and it's it's it's, it's not technical. It's just going back to basics, getting the basics right, hiring the right people, making sure they believe their job is the most important job in the world and, and giving them the tools to do that. Yeah, definitely. I know, um, you know, it's, it's incredible the, the work that you do. And, you know, for, for anyone that I know you've said it yourself, people see your work, um, you know, especially guys, they're like, right, we want to come out to Zimbabwe. We want to come and help you shoot poachers and things like that. And, and people yeah. like me watching Akashinga's like, I want to go and do that. But, you know, it takes a special kind of person to do, you know, the work that you're doing. And, and we're not all cut out for that. We're not all able to do it. So, you know, for... I've been following you for a long time, as, as I said, and, you know, we get the newsletters. I'm constantly staggered by the, the scale of the work that you're doing, by the countless projects that you have and the massive fundraising that you've been doing and, and need to continue to do. So for, for everyone out there who can't be Akashinga, who can't get out there and help you in Zimbabwe, how can we help and support your work? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's all about just looking at the way that we, we, we lead our lives. And it doesn't have to be IFEF or Akashinga. You know, it's got to be something to do with conservation of the environment. And, and I suppose the biggest, the, the, the strongest message I can, I can give is that, that doing something good doesn't buy a credit to do something bad. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, we've got to, you know, we've got to keep improving our lives and the way we treat nature at every possible uh, sort of crossroads that we come to, uh, you know, research more, do, do understand more about the implications of not looking after nature, of where we're going as a species, of where other species are going because of our actions. Uh, choose an organisation, choose a cause, choose a mission, choose a passion, choose a purpose, choose something. Uh, but don't sit there and think that your effort is not going to be enough and that the collective efforts of enough people are going to add up to something significant because they will. Um, but while individuals sit back and think other people are going to do the work, then then we are fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Such a, such a prominent message, especially right now. And um, finally, as someone who has been seen and done and accomplished so much, you know, what is your vision for the future? Uh, so we are in the process of scaling Akashinga to our second landscape. Um, our, our first landscape being the Zambezi Valley. The second landscape uh, will take us to the ocean. Uh, it'll be a, a terrestrial slash uh, coastal maritime project, uh, which for me, being uh, you know having come from the ocean and the, and the coast of Australia, is very exciting to be able to go back there now with with Akashinga and a model that's working and scaling and, and doing so well. But uh, by by early 2026, um, the end of 26 at the latest, uh, we would hope to have uh, 20 areas, former trophy hunting areas that have been reclaimed uh, or have died out and being res resurrected through this program with an army of uh, a thousand women protecting those areas. Uh, women whose, whose 
sons and daughters will be uh, coming mm. through the ranks, being trained through scholarship programs, uh, women who are going on to university and, and, and coming back and helping rebuild the communities they came from. Uh, a slow uh, revolution driven through education and empowerment uh, in these communities uh, that are turning them around and, and bringing them out of the dirt and the dust uh, and into a place that they, um, a place of prosperity. Uh, uh, our other program, Lead Ranger, uh, we're in the process of expanding that uh, into Southern Africa now. We've just finished building the facility uh, and we'll be running the first uh, instructors course before the end of the year. Uh, and Lead Ranger is the training of in, uh, the, the capacity building of indigenous leadership within existing and well-established conservation organizations. Uh, so far, we've trained uh, 44 instructors uh, from five countries uh, with 1,100 rangers uh, who work underneath them that help protect over 14 million acres of African wilderness every day. So the expansion of that program, if all I did for the rest of my life was be part of a team that helped expand Akashinga and Lead Ranger, then I, I would be uh, a happy man. Um, so the expansion of Lead Ranger to, to next Southern Africa and then to West Africa uh, and then perhaps beyond the continent, I think is, um, is where we're looking uh, in the immediate future. Fantastic. I, I can't wait yeah. to follow this all and um, yeah, keep our followers up to date. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear how this goes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I love what you said earlier about having hope, you know, and listening to you um, and everything, everything that you've done and are doing and everything, you know, you, you've got that, such a set vision for the future and it is wonderful. I, I just have to ask, um, you know, because people sort of uh you know, you, you see the IAPF and you sort of think, oh, yeah, they, they save elephants and rhinos. But, you know, you play such a huge role in the community with as people as well. I was reading this week about a wee girl that was two years old and she suffered mm. uh, burns to 30 percent of her body. You know, you, you've been helping her as well, haven't you? Yeah, there's this. I mean, as well as stocking clinics and, and with medicines, you know, when we first arrived in a new area that we've just set up, uh, expanded into uh, delivering babies without medication under candlelight. And, uh, you know, in a place where the difference between life and death can often be, you know, a few bucks for malarial tablets or antibiotics, uh, um, you know, being able to come in and, and be able to provide solar electricity and basic, basic medications and, and first aid training and, and have a nurse on site, uh, you know, it, is, it goes a long way in, in, in not only doing, just doing the right thing and doing what, what is humane and, and, being, and being able to help people, but building those relationships with the communities that ultimately will decide the future of, of the wilderness we're trying to protect. Um, you know, she's, she's actually making a really good recovery, burns to 30% of her body. Um, uh, you know, the, a few weeks ago, there was a young boy, Sean, who is seven years old mm -hmm. and, he, and he hasn't been able to walk and he's been dragging himself around in the dirt. You know, he's still with a smile on his face, but that's how he, get, he used to get around and he's got a wheelchair now. And, smile is a little bit bigger but you know he doesn't have to drag himself in the dirt anymore you know it's small amounts of money and small things um yeah you know another young girl hasn't been to school since she was since she was, she was very young because uh, she's too embarrassed because she has a tumor on her face uh and you know just something as simple as being able to get down and get a series of injections and start reducing the size of that tumor uh to a point where it can be removed um you know it doesn't you know we raised like four thousand dollars for that that specific case and and that's you know that four thousand dollars is going to change that girl's life she's going to be able to go back to school and complete her high school certificate who knows maybe one day she'll be a ranger but um you know so, you know small change in, in our lives can mean big changes for others and uh, you know often um you know we lose perspective uh in the worlds we live in and and uh 
just just a few bucks here and there can go a long way in someone else's life. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Damien's work, check out iapf.org. And once again, be sure to follow us on our social media pages for future episodes. And if you're enjoying our content, please leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. This has been Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals.